Well, good morning. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. I'd like to start out in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Feel free to follow along on the screen or look in your own Bibles. Paul says in Romans 3, verse 10, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In the verses we just read, the Apostle Paul quotes at least six different Old Testament scriptures to make his case and to illustrate that mankind is thoroughly fallen. Now, by God's grace, we're not as bad as we could be. There has been much evil committed throughout history, but much evil has also been prevented or restrained. And it's true that we occasionally hear stories about human beings doing things that are genuinely selfless, virtuous, and honorable. But according to Paul, from a bird's eye view, the story of human nature has not been a good one. While we may not be as bad as we could be, we are plenty bad enough to deserve wrath and death. Paul says that we are under sin to the point that none of us can ever do enough to regain right standing with God or to deserve eternal reward. Now, you may not agree with Paul, but you'd be wrong. Now, you may think that some people are thoroughly fallen, deserving of wrath and death, but not people like you. You know, people like criminals and axe murderers and Hitler, but not me, right? Romans 3, 10 through 18 doesn't describe me, but Paul offers no qualifiers, no exceptions, no limitations to his assessment of mankind across time and space. You are fallen. I am fallen. You deserve wrath and death, and so do I. Paul says, none is righteous. No, not one. Now, you may be thinking, oh boy, here we go again. We've been talking about this bad news for the past two Sundays. It's been all about sin. It's been all about rebellion. It's been all about wickedness. And the last time that we read any good news in the book of Romans seems like a long time ago. But then just when it seems like this book has hit rock bottom, when we feel like we are drowning in this relentless teaching about our sinfulness, Paul finally lets us come up for air. In chapter 3, he shifts back to the gospel, the reason he wrote Romans to begin with. And Paul reminds us that there is good news, and it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And for sinners like us, If we're even half as bad as the description that Paul just gave in verses 10 through 18, for sinners like us, Jesus Christ is our only hope 
in this life and in the next. So open up to Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Feel free to use our Bibles here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we go any further, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that tells us the truth about who we are, who you are, the way our world is created, the way it is meant to function. Father, even when those truths are hard, hearing that we are not righteous, not any one of us, is a jarring thing to hear. But that makes the gospel that we hear about in this same passage that much more glorious, that much more beautiful. And so, Father, be with us this morning as we read about what the gospel is and what exactly you've done for us and who exactly we are now as we have faith in Christ. And, Father, I pray that we would leave here glorifying you for this good news that Paul has shared in the book of Romans that has continued to be passed down throughout the centuries and that, Father, we still share today, that we still believe today. Again, we love you, we worship you, we thank you for the broken body and shed blood of Christ, and we ask this all in his name. Amen. Well, we left off last week with Paul leveling the playing field between Jews and Gentiles. He argued that God is an impartial judge and that everyone must answer to him for their sin. And at the end of the day, God's judgment is not based on who had the law. And who didn't? God is concerned about who did the law. His judgment is based not on who was circumcised on the outside with a knife and who wasn't. He's concerned about who was circumcised in the heart by the Spirit. So for both Jews and Gentiles, those who do the law will be justified. But they can't just do it with outward obedience. They have to do it with inward devotion. And according to Paul, no one has done that. However, that doesn't mean that God has completely forgotten about the special covenant that he made with Israel in the Old Testament. In Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Paul acknowledges that the Jews have played a unique, significant, and God-ordained role in salvation history. Now, it's true that not all of them were faithful to the role that God called them to. Many Jews in Paul's day rejected Jesus, their own Messiah. But that doesn't change the fact that God is still good, God is still faithful, God is still just, even when those don't believe him. However, the truth remains that the Jews still have the same problem as the Gentiles. It's the problem for all mankind. It's the problem of sin. And every sinner will receive God's wrath, God's judgment, and ultimately death. But that is, of course, unless God somehow intervenes. And in Romans 3, 21 through 26, Paul goes into much more detail about how God has done exactly that. Martin Luther referred to Romans 3, 21 through 26 as the chief point and the very central place of Romans and of the whole Bible. Sounds pretty important. And Martin Luther said that because this passage is where we see perhaps the fullest, most technical explanation of how the gospel works. 
that we will see in the book of Romans. And maybe the best explanation that we will see in all of scripture. So reading Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul says that the righteousness of God is displayed in the Old Testament. That's the law and the prophets. But now there is a new manifestation of God's righteousness that has been ushered in by Jesus Christ. And thanks to Christ's work, sinners can now stand in God's presence. And Paul uses several very loaded words to communicate exactly how this has happened. So I want to focus on four words that Paul uses in Romans 3, 21 through 26. It's an incredibly dense passage. And some of these words we may be familiar with. Some of these words may be foreign or new to us. Some of these words get thrown around flippantly amongst Christians And one of these words in particular, we tend to avoid entirely. But it's very important that we try to understand what these words mean. The four words we're talking about are, number one, justified. Number two, grace. Number three, redemption. And then number four, propitiation. So let's start with the first word. What does Paul mean when he says in Romans 3, 21 through 26, that we are justified? What does it mean to be justified? Well, in the book of Romans, to be justified means to be declared righteous by God. Justification is a one-time event when a sinner believes, when God declares you to be righteous. And when God declares something, it's true. It's real. I mean, come on. We're talking about the God who spoke our universe into existence out of nothing. So when he declares something, when he says something, we better pay attention to it. So when God says that we are righteous, we really are righteous. It's like when a judge in a courtroom says innocent or guilty. When I say those words, it doesn't mean anything because I'm not a judge. I don't have that authority. They're just words. But when a judge says innocent or a judge says guilty, those aren't just words. Those words have power because of the authority of the person who spoke them. And when we are justified, God himself declares us to be righteous. In fact, the earliest Christians understood justification in the context of a courtroom. A person who has been justified by God is cleared in court. You might even say that that person is pardoned. 
But you also have to keep in mind that to be justified doesn't just mean not guilty. It's more than that. Justification means that God has declared you to be righteous. Now, how in the world does that happen? I mean, Paul has spent two and a half chapters telling us that we aren't righteous. And yet here he says that we are righteous because God says that we are. How can that happen? Well, God declares us to be righteous because he credits Christ's perfect righteousness to our account. The good news is that the righteousness of God is not something that we have to muster up from within ourselves to earn God's approval. Rather, the righteousness of God is a gift that God gives to sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. Early, early Christians referred to Christ's righteousness being credited to our account as the sweet exchange. And indeed, what a sweet exchange it is. That's why in 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul refers to Jesus as our righteousness. Our righteousness. Theologian F.F. Bruce says, What Jews and Gentiles need alike, in fact, is to have their records blotted out by an act of divine amnesty and to have the assurance of acceptance by God for no merit of their own, but by his spontaneous mercy. For this need, God has made provision in Christ. We have been declared righteous because Christ is righteous. And because of our faith in Christ, Christ's righteousness is credited to us. The sweet exchange, justification. Now, what do we need by the word grace? Of the four words that we're talking about this morning, this is probably the one that gets thrown around the most and probably gets abused the most. So what do we mean when we say grace? Well, grace can be defined as God's unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. It's closely related to the word following behind it in verse 24, the word gift. These two words are very similar. Now, the most important thing that we must understand about grace as believers in Christ is that we contribute nothing to our salvation. We have nothing to bring to the table. We have no leverage. Our salvation is completely a result of God's undeserved generosity to us, a gift of his grace. Our works whether they be distinctly Jewish works, like what we see in the Old Testament with circumcision, emphasized over and over again, or whether our works are more general acts of morality, religious observance, helping little old ladies across the street, whatever our works look like, they do not contribute to our salvation. It is purely a work of God's grace. We do not obtain God's grace by anything that we do. He generously gives it. All of our salvation comes back to God's grace, and we don't deserve any credit for it. Blaise Pascal wrote, Grace is indeed needed to turn a man into a saint, and he who doubts this does not know what a saint or a man is. Grace is needed for our salvation. It is the only thing that can save us. And then we get to word number three, redemption. What exactly is redemption? 
Well, the world of the New Testament was full of people who needed to be redeemed. You could picture a criminal. You could picture a prisoner of war. You could picture a slave. And in order to be redeemed, in order to be freed or liberated or delivered, something had to be done. If you were a criminal, you had to do your time. If you were a prisoner of war, you needed your side to come and defeat the enemy or maybe negotiate a release if you're being held hostage. If you were a slave, you had to work hard enough and work long enough to earn your freedom yourself or else someone else had to come and pay a price for you. Something had to happen. One way or another, your freedom had to be bought for your redemption. Whether you found a way to do that yourself or someone else did it for you. But the gospel tells us that our ransom has been paid by the only person qualified to pay it, Jesus Christ. We were guilty of sin, held captive by it, enslaved by it, deserving wrath and death, a price that we could never pay ourselves. Only Christ could. Paul says in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, redemption. And then first Peter one eighteen and 19, we know that we were ransomed. There's the idea of redemption. We were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We have been redeemed. We have been ransomed. A price has been paid on our behalf that we could never pay ourselves. And then finally, word number four. And this is maybe the word that we're least familiar with. It's the word propitiation. That word is best defined as a sacrifice that takes away wrath. And as we've seen the past few weeks, Paul has repeatedly used the word wrath. Propitiation is also related to the word that describes the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. The mercy seat is the place where God would appear to accept sacrifices for sin on the Day of Atonement. But it's not the blood of a bull or a ram offered at the mercy seat over and over again by a priest for our sins that saves us. It's not that at all. It's the blood of Jesus Christ offered by himself on the cross once and for all, for all of our sins, past, present, and future. He is our propitiation. Now this teaching that Jesus is our sacrifice that takes away wrath, often comes under fire. People worry that it paints a frightening image of God, even comparing it to divine child abuse. Others say that it portrays God as one of the horrible false gods of the pagans, demanding blood for appeasement. And others argue that sacrifice that takes away wrath just sounds a little too gruesome. And so Christians shouldn't use that word. But it's important to remember that God the Father and Jesus the Son are not two opposing parties. The Father sends the Son, and the Son willingly obeys the Father. This is not divine child abuse. 
And God is not like all the other gods that the pagans tried to appease. They were very moody. They could be very easily manipulated. But God is perfect and God is holy. And you know what? Yeah, I will grant you that the word propitiation, sacrifice that takes away wrath, does sound kind of gruesome. But that's because it is. The jarring image of Christ's blood shed on the cross ought to tell us something about the weight and the ugliness of our sin. So those are the four big words I wanted to cover from Romans 3, 21 through 26. That you were justified by God's grace for redemption by the propitiation of Jesus Christ. And how does that happen? Not by works. As Paul emphasized over and over and over again, it happens by faith. But how do we apply that to our everyday lives? All these big theological words. Well, Paul actually gives us the application, starting in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So Paul gives us three different ways that these high-minded theological terms, this truth about who we are, actually does work itself out in our everyday lives. Application number one is that there is no room for boasting. Zero room for boasting. All of our salvation is a work of God's grace. So there is absolutely no reason for us to brag about anything in us Or to be full of ourselves and look down on others. In 2012, then-President Barack Obama was running for re-election. And in a speech, President Obama said, If you've got a business, you didn't build that. Now, predictably, people who started their own businesses took a great deal of offense to that speech. They were very bothered by his comments. They felt like he sold them short of all the money and the time and the sacrifice that they put in to start their businesses. And who knows? Maybe they had a point. But when it comes to our salvation, those words are true. We didn't build that. Even our faith cannot be considered a work that we accomplish or achieve to gain access to God's grace. As if we were just smarter and humbler and more theologically astute than all those other people out there who didn't have faith. We can't even boast in that. Again, all of our salvation comes back to God's grace. Meaning we don't deserve credit for any of it. In the words of Augustine, we must boast in nothing because nothing is our own. We must boast in nothing because nothing is our own. Application point number two is that we have a diverse family of faith. 
I mean, think about it. If the way to get into the family of God is to believe in Jesus, then that means that you have a whole lot of siblings who aren't like you in God's family. You have brothers and sisters in Christ who you have never met and never will meet. And some of them will look and act very similar to you, and many of them will act and look nothing like you. But if we have faith in Christ in common, then all those differences that separate us, the differences across time and borders and languages and skin colors and traditions and denominations, all those differences become secondary. We have a diverse family in Christ. Because many different people believe in Christ. And then thirdly, the fact that all of this comes by faith, justification and redemption. The fact that all of this comes by faith does not give us license to sin. Many people in Paul's day criticized him of turning a blind eye to sin. They told Paul that, Paul, if you keep telling people that all they have to do is believe to be justified, then they're going to start doing whatever they want. They're not going to take their works seriously. They're going to disobey the law. They're going to do all kinds of horrible actions and commit all kinds of sins and not take obedience seriously. They're going to argue that as long as I have faith in Jesus, then God doesn't care what I do. But Paul responds and says, no. That is not what I'm teaching. By no means. Later in the book, Paul makes it clear that after we believe in Jesus, we produce good works by the Holy Spirit's power. After we're initially justified by faith, we are continually sanctified by the Spirit, made holy in our words, holy in our deeds. Now, as we close, think back to the verses we read when the sermon first began. Romans 3, starting in verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And you can keep going down the list all the way to verse 18. You know, that awful description of mankind is true of you and it's true of me. Or at least it was. Before we had faith in Christ. But those who believe have been justified by God's grace. We have been redeemed by the propitiation of Jesus' blood. And so if you're sitting here this morning as a believer in Christ, I cannot stress enough that this is the most important truth about you. Justification, grace, redemption, propitiation... These are not just high-minded theological words and ideas that get thrown around in the church. These words describe what has happened to you as a believer. These words are who you are now in Christ. You know, our sin is very real, but so is the gospel. And it's thanks to God's intervention, this good news of Jesus Christ, That we don't get the wrath and the death that we deserve. And so if you already believe this, rejoice in remembering how God has saved you. Rejoice in remembering what God has saved you from. And if you don't believe this, I pray that you would today. 
that you might go home justified by God's grace and redeemed by Christ's blood. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for this gospel that we believe. We say we believe it and we talk about it and we sing about it, but it's a good reminder to read what exactly has happened to us, how exactly we have been saved, who we are now in Christ. Father, thank you for justifying us by faith. We could not stand in your presence if not for your grace. We couldn't even dare approach you if not for your grace. And so, Father, we thank you for declaring us to be righteous. Not because we've done enough to be declared righteous, but rather because of Christ's righteousness on our behalf. And, Father, thank you that this is all by grace. This is not by our works. We would all fall short. We would have no hope if we were trusting in our own morality, in our own good works, in our own acts of charity and philanthropy and all those types of things. We would be without hope. As the Old Testament says, our best works are like dirty rags when set next to your holiness. And so, Father, thank you for your grace. And, Father, thank you that you have bought us, that you have redeemed us with the broken body and shed blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Again, that price was not cheap, and it was gruesome. But, Father, that shows not only the weight of our sin, but also shows the sheer love that you have for sinners. And for that, we glorify you. And, Father, again, thank you that Christ's sacrifice has taken away the wrath that we deserve, that we can come to you with confidence, that we can look forward to the day of judgment with confidence, that we don't have to fear what happens after death, Because wrath is not in store for us. We look forward to reward. We look forward to reunion. We look forward to glorying in your presence for eternity. Because of Christ's broken body and shed blood. And Father, again, I pray that those of us here who believe this would rejoice in it. That we would understand it better. That it would never grow old. And Father, for those who are here who don't believe this. I pray that they would believe it today. Father, again, we honor you, we worship you, we are in awe of you and your son. And we ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.